Good morning. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving, did you? Did you give thanks? Oh, good, okay. Sometimes we just eat on Thanksgiving, and I'm not sure that that's as beneficial. Well, it is beneficial, but not sure it's as beneficial as it could be if we were giving thanks. May Christ be magnified. That was a, a wonderful way to begin this last message in, in the series that we, have, uh, we had going on in the, in the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth. I, I do want to say before we get started, I, I may say it again in the message, and I certainly will say it as we get going in December, but in the month of December, we're going to do something um, different, a little different. We're not going to teach thematically, we're still going to teach expositionally, but we're going to look at four separate stories from God's Word that lead us to the theme, watch the lamb. We're going to look at the lamb and the, the, the scarlet thread that runs through the Bible based on the blood of the lamb, moving from Genesis all the way through to, well, actually, the end of the, uh, the, the, the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, as we watch the role of the lamb increase over time. And then Christmas Eve, uh, Christmas Eve, December 24th, is actually a Sunday, and so we'll have church just like we always do, and that will be the fourth in the series on Watch the Lamb. And then our theme for Christmas Eve in a one-hour setting, <laughs> we'll get you in here by five, we hope, and out by six, uh, we, w we will. We'll have you out in an hour. We do that every year because we want to honor your family and your family traditions. But um, on that evening, the theme will be Watch the Lamb, and we'll try to pull it all together uh, with uh, the story of the birth and how Jesus became. Jesus was the Lamb of God. But it didn't begin, it did not begin that Christmas night in, uh, in Bethlehem. It began before the ages of eternity passed because Jesus Christ is the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. It was always God's plan. And so we're going to use this December to honor that tradition, and uh, I'll just say it. Please don't miss a single Sunday morning in December, because all of those will tie together, just like the story of Ruth has tied together, I trust. This morning, uh, we'll be continuing our seven-week study on the story of Ruth in a series entitled, A Story for the Ages. This is part seven and entitled, The Last Word, and we'll be unpacking Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. Last week, Brian walked us through the first 12 verses of Ruth chapter 4, and highlighted for us the role of the kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer. Both of those uh, translations would be correct back in the days when Ruth lived. I have to say that Brian did a masterful job, Brian, i, I got to give it to you, in helping us to understand some pretty tricky cultural hijinks as he walked us through these last two chapters. There was that business of Ruth going at night to the threshing floor where she watches as Boaz finds a place to lie down and then at Naomi's urging, Ruth waits until dark and then she sneaks between all those sleeping men and, and uncovers Boaz's feet and then, well, she lies down at his feet. Then in the middle of the night, she startled, he's startled awake by something and as he sits up, he can't help but notice that his feet are uncovered. But that isn't the half of it. A woman is lying there at his feet. He knew it was a woman, despite the darkness. And, and while Boaz knew immediately what that meant, what he didn't know was who it was that was lying there at his feet. 
So he does what any honorable man. So he does what any first day with my new lips. So he does what any honorable man would do at that moment. At a moment like that, he says to her, "Hey, who are you?" To which she replies, "I'm your servant, Ruth." And then she says, "Spread the corner of your blanket over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of my family." Boaz then pronounces a blessing over Ruth and actually thanks her for the kindness and consideration she had shown in requesting that he be the one to pay the price to redeem her from the all but hopeless situation in which she and Naomi found themselves. He then tells her that, if, that there is one who is a nearer relative than he. Uh, but he promises her that if the nearer relative will not redeem the, the land and her, then as surely as the Lord lives, he, Boaz, will do it. He then covered her with a corner of his blanket, just as he, she requested, and she lay there at his feet all that night, and then got up to leave while it was still too dark for anyone to notice that a woman had been there on the threshing floor. The next morning, Boaz requested a meeting with the ten most important men in town and invited Mr. So-and-so, the loser, who was also the nearer kinsman redeemer, to discuss this very important matter. And Boaz does nothing that's in any way underhanded from a purely business perspective, but he's super shrewd and clearly clever as he seals the deal that will make Ruth his wife. And as he does that, he makes it clear to everyone and anyone that after all those years when Ruth was alone as a woman and unwanted as a foreigner, he loved and wanted her and was willing to pay any price so that she could be his, so that she could belong to him. Brian pointed out that the story of Ruth and Boaz is a love story, but it's also an allegory that points us directly to Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, our guardian redeemer. And then Brian sealed the deal last week by pointing out that Jesus, our redeemer, is faithful and true. And because of that, he deserves all the glory for redeeming us. Our Redeemer wants us to reflect His character to others in the same way that the descendants of Boaz and Ruth reflected the excellent characters of that couple. Our Redeemer takes us from dishonor to honor, just like Boaz did for that foreign woman, Ruth. And Because of all that, we should be telling everyone about our Redeemer, the one who loved us and bought us from our sin with His own blood, because everybody needs to know. And that makes me want to ask this morning, in response to Brian's challenge there at the end, did you tell anyone about your Redeemer this past week? Had a conversation with somebody who said, uh, and, and just in the course of it, without asking that question, he shared with me a couple of people he had shared with during the week, and it did such good things for my heart. But did you tell anyone? And I hope that message and that challenge from Brian last week was not just water off a duck's back. For you, if you can appreciate that image. And of course, that's something that we hope every week. We don't want God's word as it goes forth from this pulpit. We don't want it to be water off a duck's back. We want you to, to we, we, we hope that you will always remember that we don't come to God's word to be informed. We come to God's word to be transformed, changed. In other words, it's not enough to simply agree with what's been said or think of it as being a good message, uh, whatever's been said from behind this pulpit week by week. In fact, Jesus himself called it foolish. If anyone just listened to the word without putting the word 
into practice without doing what it says. And that's all I'll say about that because a word to the wise is redundant. No, I know, I know. A word to the wise is sufficient. That's the way we're supposed to say it. But I figure if we truly are wise people, we should have some sense about these things that we've just been talking about. Well, anyway, you may remember that right there at the end, last week, Brian did that thing that both of us have been doing at the end of the messages as we've gone through Ruth. He told you that you'd have to come back next week to find out what happens next. He said that in relation to a question he asked near the end after he talked about the blessing that the people of Bethlehem pronounced over Ruth and Boaz in their relationship. You may remember that they expressed a fond wish that Boaz and Ruth, uh, that the family that came from Boaz and Ruth would have a profound impact on the world. An even more profound impact than all of the rest of the families in Bethlehem combined. And then Brian asked if we thought it might be possible that Boaz and Ruth, two people from Bethlehem, might actually have a greater impact on the world than the little town of Bethlehem itself might have had. And then he said that we'd all have to come back next week if we wanted to know the answer to that question. And now, over the course of the last seven days, last week has become next week, or as we more commonly call it, this week. And and I, I just want you to know that this week we will answer that question that Brian asked there at the end, but I won't answer it explicitly. I'll ask you to do the math, I'll do the calculations, and I'll ask you to decide if Boaz and Ruth did indeed profoundly impact the world of their future. But I want to talk for a moment about that that week, this week thing and that come back next week cadence that we've been using these past seven weeks. And I want to say that I admit that it may have sounded a bit silly to you in in some respects, but I hope you got used to it because next year we'll be studying Genesis together. And since Genesis is a story just like Ruth, each week we'll connect last week's story to this week's story by way of a review at the beginning of the message. And then we'll connect this week's story to next week's story by way of a hook at the end of the message. And once again, that's because it's always important to teach and study God's Word in context. That said, I can now say that over the course of the first six messages on Ruth, we've been saying that You'll have to come back next week to find out how this turns out. But this seventh message is going to be different in that regard because this is the final message in the series. And that's why I've entitled this this message, The Last Word. Because, listen to me, despite all the work that Brian put into this series, I have the last word when it comes to the story of Ruth. I'm sorry, I, I... I might have gotten a little carried away there. But before we get to the last word, I want to take a few minutes to make sure that you're okay with the cultural oddities and the, the strange customs here in the story of Ruth. I don't want those things to be unsettling you as you look back on the story. I have to tell you that I really appreciated the fact that Brian went out of his way to point out that there was nothing at all inappropriate about, inappropriate about anything that Ruth or, or Boaz did, anything that Ruth did on the threshing floor that night or that Boaz did that next day. And once again, a lot of the Bible commentators don't land where Brian landed, but instead they managed to see... To, to see uh, an inappropriate and, and dark side to the, to the things that Ruth and, and Boaz did as they did that very cultural dance together. 
And I think personally that the best way to, to help you to appreciate the culture and customs in the story of Ruth would be for me to share something from the Bukalo culture that didn't really help me to understand what's going on in Ruth, but it did help me to appreciate it. And that's always the first step in understanding a, a different worldview than your own. Let's imagine for a moment that you're visiting with Faith and me and our family among the Bukalot 40 years ago when we were living there, and we're sitting there talking about the village and the lay of the land and, and other stuff like that, and in the middle of the conversation, a young Bukalot woman comes to the house for a chat or needing something. Now, just out of curiosity, you might have asked how old she was, and I can tell you that I'd probably have taken a little while to answer. That's because birthdays were not a common tradition back then since most people didn't know the date or the year in which they were born. Older people would often cite, uh, reference their age by comparing it to when the Japanese were in Bukalo territory. They'd say something like, when the Japanese were here, I was just learning to talk, or I was just learning to walk, or, or my voice was just beginning to change, something like that. And hearing that, I, I'd, I'd do the math and try to extrapolate what, what year they were born, and then I'd be able to tell both you and them how old they were. It was always a very enlightening moment for them, because it just wasn't a tradition. So older people didn't know what year they were born, but they could reference the time of the Japanese. Some younger people, on the other hand, did know the year that they were born, but if they didn't, and if they couldn't reference how old they were when the Japanese were there, because they hadn't been born yet... I would have to resort to trying to sort, out, sort that out by asking someone else. I'd turn perhaps to one of the other Bukalot women in the room, and I'd ask her, which literally translated, translated means, do you think how many years now? And you probably have noticed that, that they don't point with their hands and their fingers because that's, that's rude and crude, and uh, they point with their lips, and I would hope that you would make a mental note of that as you made your way through the rest of your visit. But anyway, I might ask somebody, and it might just be that the answer that would come back would be, literally translated, that would be no, because she's the return uncle of him and ate recently the uncle of her. It makes a lot more sense in Bukalo, trust me on that. More loosely, it would be translated, she's the niece of that guy, and that guy, her uncle, recently ate. Because of that, we had lived there long enough to understand their culture and their customs, hearing that, I would have known approximately how old she was. But since perhaps you might still find yourself in the dark, I probably need to do some more explaining. You're probably aware that the Bukalo were headhunters, and because of that, it was impossible for a young man to get married until he had taken a head. But there was more than just a head involved if a young man wanted to get married. And, and that's because the, the Bukalo used to practice bride price. In other words, when a young, couple was, was, uh, a young couple was free to fall in love and to want to get married, but a marriage wouldn't happen just because of something as simple as a young man proposing to a young woman. Instead, a young man would first tell his parents that he wanted to marry that girl from that family, and the family of the groom-to-be groom would immediately get busy. They'd begin to take stock of what they might have to offer as a bride price, and, and then armed with that mental list, the uncle of the groom would arrange a meeting with the uncle of the bride, and that's when the first hint that these two might get married would take place between these two families. 
Rice and meat and cassava and vegetables would then be prepared and set out in front of the two men, but neither of them, listen to me, neither of them would eat anything before the negotiations began. The uncle of the groom would suggest this many sacks of rice and this many necklaces and and other household items as a price for the bride-to-be. The uncle of the bride would then insist that that would not be enough and ask this many more of those things along with this many more of other things that he could think of. The negotiations and the haggling would go on until the uncle of the bride, on behalf of the bride's family, was satisfied with the offer. And, then, and that, was, that was when, when he was satisfied, the uncle of the bride would reach down, take some rice, put it in his hand, put it into his mouth, chew and swallow it, and that meant that the transaction was completed and the couple was married. That was the moment when they were married. And so when I asked that Bukalot woman how old that young lady was, and she said to me, her uncle recently ate, what did that mean? It meant that that young woman you're asking about was recently married, and that would mean that she was somewhere between 18 and 22, something like that. And I wish I could be more specific than that, but I really can't. Now, I want to admit something to you. When I first heard about the bride price thing, I was troubled. I was troubled thinking that it wasn't right to treat a woman like a piece of chattel that was, that was for sale. But then I discovered over time that there was no divorce among the bucalos. And that was directly tied to the bride price tradition because it took the whole family of the groom working together to gather the bride price. No groom could come up with the bride price on his own. And that meant that if the young man decided he didn't want to be married to that girl anymore, he could leave her, I suppose. But since his family had already gathered the bride price for him once, he'd be on his own the next time. Uh, it came to gathering bride price for his new bride. And that would mean that he'd have to settle for some toothless old woman if he decided to leave his young bride. And I'm not saying that that lady isn't cute. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that most young men would not want to be married to her, especially at a price. So the groom wouldn't want to leave. And if the young bride decided she wanted to leave her new husband, then her family would have to give the bride price back in its entirety And that was almost always impossible. And that all meant that because of pressure from both families, it was easier, literally easier, to stay together and work on their marriage than it was to get a divorce. And I have to tell you, watching the state of marriage in the United States and how easy it is to get a divorce, I find myself wishing at times that we practice bride price here in the United States. Well, anyway told you that story because I want you to understand what happens when we look at another culture and its customs through the lens of our own culture. And I want you to understand that because I'm afraid that many of the Bible commentators who sought to explain the story of Ruth have come up with explanations that are based on their modern-day culture, the modern-day culture from which the commentator comes. In other words, they come from their own perspective instead of coming from the perspective of the culture and customs of the Jews during the times of the judges when the story of Ruth took place. Now, we're fairly certain that the times of the judges began somewhere around 1200 B.C. or about 3,200 years ago. And we're also fairly certain that the story of Ruth happened near the beginning of the times of the judges. 
And so we can pinpoint it even further by saying that it took place fairly soon after the fall of Jericho. And we know that because we can cross-reference the genealogy that we'll find at the end of this book, end of this passage for this morning. But for right now, what I'm trying to say is when we look at the customs of another culture, we cannot expect to understand them if we look at them through the lens of our own culture. For example, 21st century America, in 21st century America, if a woman snuck into a place where a man was sleeping and uncovered his legs and feet and then asked to share the blanket that he had been using, I don't even want to know what happens next. But in 1200 B.C. among the Jews, when Ruth snuck in and uncovered the feet and legs of Boaz and then asked him to cover her with the corner of his blanket, that was a pure and ethical and even holy thing to do. And it is vitally important that we understand that before we look into this passage this morning. And that's because of something that's going to happen at the end of the passage, the end of the book of Ruth. Ruth did what Naomi told her to do that night because it was the perfect way to communicate to Boaz that Ruth and Naomi were calling on him to fulfill the role of their guardian redeemer. And if you think about the word guardian there, then you understand what Ruth meant when she said, please cover me with the corner of your blanket. I don't want the whole blanket. I just, I just want the corner of your blanket and everything that that means as you take on the role of my, our guardian redeemer. And now I can say that with all that background work done, it won't take us long to unpack this passage. And we'll start that process the way we always do, by reading the passage aloud together. So if you're able, please stand and read aloud with me Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. Why didn't you guys say something? You get quiet like that, and I start to worry about you unnecessarily. Then Naomi took the child in his arms, in her arms, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then, this then is the family line of Perez. Thank you. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Thank you. You can take your seats, and as you do, please talk to God and ask him to teach you by his word. I'm not making this up here at the end. This is the moment for you to talk to God and ask him to talk to you, to speak to you by his word, to teach you by his spirit, to give you life-sustaining truth as we unpack this passage together. Ask him to open your eyes. The story that I want to tell you this morning is a bit complicated. 
partly because it'll come from several different Old Testament passages. And once again, this Sunday, the story that I want to tell you is not about something that happened, but rather about something or several somethings that, that were said. And these things that were said were all prophetic promises that have direct bearing, not only on the outcome of this passage this morning, but on the outcome of the entire story of Ruth. In fact, a great deal of the outcome of the entire story of the Old Testament is bound up in the prophetic promises that I want to tell you about this morning. With that background, this is the story from God's Word from Genesis chapter 49, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and Isaiah chapter 9. Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, had lived many years, and his final day had finally come. He was propped up on his bed as his heartbeat was slowing and his breath grew ragged. Uh, so he called his sons together to pronounce a final blessing on them. He spoke first to his firstborn son, Reuben, and told him that his character and poor choices had made it impossible for Jacob to pass the blessing of the firstborn onto him. Simeon and Levi were next, and, and once again, Jacob withheld the blessing of the firstborn from them because of their angry and violent ways. Jacob then turned to his fourth son, Judah, and called him a lion cub and said that one day all of the brothers would bow down to him. Jacob then said something very curious to Judah, and to fully understand it, we'd have to remember that Jacob had 12 sons, and those sons would one day be the progenitors, the forerunners of the 12 tribes of the kingdom of Israel. But on that day that Jacob was speaking, they weren't yet a nation. They were still nothing more than a family, and that's why we think it's strange that Jacob chose to say this to Judah. The king's scepter will not depart from you, Judah, and the ruler's staff will not be taken away from you until Shiloh comes. And then Jacob added that when Shiloh finally arrived, he would not just rule over Israel. He would rule over all the other nations as well, and their obedience would belong to him. Jacob spoke those prophetic promises over his son, but for the sake of time, all of his sons, but for the sake of time, we'll have to leave that part of the story there and fast forward more or less a thousand years. King David and the prophet Nathan lived at the same time. And one day, Nathan spoke a prophetic promise over David. Nathan spoke to David on God's behalf and said many things, but at the heart of it all lay this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. God continued, I have been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring, your son, to succeed you as king. And then I will establish his kingdom. And then God concluded his promise to David through Nathan by saying, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And if you'll bear with me, we'll fast forward another 200 years to the time of Isaiah the prophet and something that he prophetically said to the people of Israel. For to us, 
a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. The passion, enthusiasm, and intensity of Yahweh will accomplish this. And that is the story from God's Word. But what does it all mean? What does it all have to do with the story of Ruth? Well, I'm glad you asked. The answer to your question lies in part with understanding what Jacob meant when he said that the king's scepter would not depart from Judah's line until someone who would be called Shiloh became part of Judah's lineage. Now, Shiloh means, listen, Shiloh means the one to whom it belongs. That's what that name means, the one to whom it belongs. And knowing that makes the meaning of Jacob's words instantly clear. In other words, Jacob said that Judah would have authority over his brothers and that eventually the kings of Israel would come from Judah's lineage. Those kings from Judah's line would hold the kingly scepter as they reigned and then they would pass it along from one generation to another until Shiloh came. You heard that in the story. Until Shiloh became king. In other words, the scepter would be passed from one generation to another and from one king to another until Shiloh was born because Shiloh would be the one to whom the kingly scepter truly belonged. And when the one king to whom the scepter truly belonged finally became king, there would be no more passing of the scepter because Shiloh, the one to whom the scepter truly belonged, would be king forever and ever and with Christmas coming, I hope that you can sort out who Jacob was referring to when he spoke of Shiloh. You see, Jacob knew and understood the promises that God had made to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather. When God said, among other things, that he would bless Abraham and make a great nation of him. And then God went on to say that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, through one of Abraham's descendants. Jacob knew that God had promised that he would send someone to redeem the human race from the bondage they had created for themselves when they first chose to disobey God. In other words, Jacob knew that God had promised that Shiloh would someday be born. And Jacob knew that God would do what he said he would do. And in that light, do you remember Brian talking to us last week about how faithful Boaz was and how committed he was to, to, to do what he said he would do? Well, this morning I want us to see that Boaz's commitment and faithfulness was just a shadow that was cast by the immeasurably bright light of the faithfulness of God. Sure, Boaz was faithful and he kept his word, but we must understand that everything that's happened so far in the story of Ruth has happened because of God's personal commitment to keep his promise. It all has to do with that. And that brings us up to the moment with the passage for this morning. Because Boaz and Ruth married and began to live together as husband and wife, but it was God himself who enabled Ruth to have a son. Look what it says in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, and the Lord Yahweh enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. 
And God's involvement in that way and in that moment is just another hint that there's, there's something much bigger going on here than the simple courtship and marriage of Boaz and Ruth. Remember how the whole thing went down. Boaz had just happened to appear out of nowhere, seemingly, and, and walked onto the stage like a hero just when Naomi and Ruth and us, we all thought it was just too late for the hero to show up. And with authority passion, enthusiasm, and intensity, Boaz took charge of the situation and paid the ransom price for Ruth and Naomi. And once again, Boaz's authority, passion, enthusiasm, and intensity flows directly from the heart of God himself. And it seems that even the women of Bethlehem recognize that. Look what they said to Naomi in, in verses 14 and 15. To Naomi, after the birth of her grandson. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord. Yahweh, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. And you know what? Naomi saw it too. She knew that her future had been secured by the birth of this child, this son born to Boaz and Ruth. And in the midst of all these customs that we didn't understand, we see Naomi do something that's just like every grandmother in every generation, in every nation. She scooped up her little grandson in her arms and she cherished him. Look at verses 16 and 17. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, not a grandson. Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Do you see that? In response to their collective sense of what was about to happen, and in response to their collective sense of what God was about to do, they named the little guy Obed. And I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but everybody that spoke that language back in that day knew that it meant that Obed meant strong. Obed means strong, and that's a pretty big name for someone who can't even lift his own head. But as we near the Christmas season, it makes our spines tingle. As we think of the night that the Lord of all the universe stepped down from his great throne and slept in a manger. The night when Almighty God humbled himself and became an infant who couldn't lift his own head. And there'll be more about that story beginning next week and carrying right through Christmas, as I mentioned. But before we go there, it still falls for me to have the last word on the story of Ruth. But I don't want to share the last word in the story of Ruth until I've taken a couple of minutes to share the next to the last word on this seven-week series. And I want to get there by reminding you that part of the time during our time in Ruth, we've been stepping closer to the story of Ruth as we focused on the characters in the story. Elimelech, Naomi, Mahlon, Kilion, Orpah, Ruth, Boaz, and Mr. So-and-so, the loser from last week. Part of the time, we, we, we looked through a microscope as we focused in on the small details, the smaller pieces of the story. But at other times, we've set aside our microscope and rubbed our eyes to refocus them. And we did that so that we could pick up our telescope and look off into the distance at things that are much bigger than this small story. Part of the time, we've stepped closer, but at other moments, we've stepped back from the story to focus on the real main character in the story as we've seen God himself at work behind the scenes 
orchestrating the bits and pieces of the story of Ruth. And as we've done that, we've admitted that there's more than one story unfolding here as as we've seen parallels between the smaller story of Ruth and the much larger story of redemption. And the primary parallel that we've drawn is the one between Boaz paying the price to redeem Ruth from the distressing place in which she found herself and the story of our Redeemer who has paid the ransom price that brought us our freedom. See, the truth is that we were all slaves to sin who were headed on a collision course with an eternity in the pit of hell. But Jesus, our Redeemer, intervened with his precious blood and paid the price for our ransom, paid the price for our freedom with his blood. And because of what Jesus did, because of his finished work, we are redeemed today by faith. By dying on the cross and rising from the dead, Jesus saved us from hell and slavery and fear. And we could go on listing the things that he saved us from, but that list of things that he saved us from is so long that we wouldn't be done with it by Christmas. He saved you from all of that. And all that he asks in return, all that he asks in return is that you believe that when he died, he died for you. He asks you to believe that when he was punished, he was punished in your place. He saves us and gives us life by his faithfulness. And we accept his salvation by our faith. And I hope that Brian and I have been able to help all of us to see that the story of Ruth, listen, it is a real story about real people who had real experiences, but it is also an allegory that symbolizes and illustrates God's eternal plan for the ages to redeem a people who would become his very own people. So this small story about a limo like Naomi, Mahlon, Kilion, Orpah, Ruth, Boaz, and Mr. So-and-so, the loser, is in reality a story for the ages, a story which God has told us about himself, a story which God has told us about himself. God wrote the smaller story of Ruth and Boaz, but it was really only a tiny part of a much larger story. The meta-narrative that God has written that stretches and spans the gap between eternity past and eternity future. Now, I've just said this story of Ruth and Boaz was a tiny part of a much larger story, but I hope that we see this morning that there is nothing tiny about the story of Ruth. And I hope that that will be especially clear by the time I've had the last word. I want to remind us that the story of Ruth is a story of desperation and hope, of tragedy and triumph, of loss and gain, of turmoil and rest, of hard work and being at ease, of despair and joy. Having said all that, I hope that you understand that as we come to the last word this morning, that Elimelech, Naomi, Mahlon, Kilion, Orpah, Ruth, Boaz, and Mr. So-and-so, listen, had no idea what was really happening in their story. They had no idea. And they had no idea how incredibly important their story was to the larger story of redemption that God has been telling since before the beginning of time. And I wonder this morning, in that light, if any one of us has any real idea what is really happening in our stories. I wonder if you realize that as God tells your story, 
that he's actually telling a small part of the much larger story of redemption. I wonder if you realize this morning in that regard that you and I are no different from Elimelech, Naomi, Mahlon, Kilion, Orpah, Ruth, Boaz, and Mr. So-and-so. I wonder if you realize that the desperation and hope, the tragedy and triumph, the loss and gain, the turmoil and rest, the hard work and being at ease, and the despair and joy in your story are all vital parts of the much larger story of redemption. And I'm asking that because God told his story through Boaz and Ruth and their families thousands of years ago. And God is still telling his story through your family today. And I guess that brings us back to the question that Brian asked last week and a question we often ask from this pulpit. What does that make you want to do? Let me tell you what I hope. I hope that the story of Ruth wants, makes you want to sit down together as a family, especially as we come to this Christmas season and the beginning of a new year. I hope that the story of Ruth makes you want to sit down as a family and agree together. Sit down as a family and agree together to allow God free access to your hearts so that he can write his story there. And I hope that as you and your family move together through life, God's story through you and your family will become a beautiful story where we can all read about the greatness and goodness of God at work in our world today because we desperately need that. As we come finally to the last word on the story of Ruth, I want to remind you that that story took place 3,200 years ago. And that means that that this little boy named Obed grew up and got married and had a family of his own. And that brings us then to to the genealogy at the end of the story of Ruth. The genealogy begins with Perez. And it's important that we know that that Perez was the son of Judah who received that blessing from Jacob. And... uh, and, and, and we should also note here that the author of Ruth doesn't give us all of the generations between the two, but he does help us to understand here that there was a direct line of descent from Judah to Perez to Obed, Obed, the son of Boaz and Ruth. Look at verses 18 to 21. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed. And I don't want to stop short there, but just for the sake of goose pimples, let me say that we know a lot about Boaz from this story. We know, for example, that Boaz's wife was named Ruth, that his mother-in-law was named Naomi, and we know that Boaz's son was named Obed. We know from what we just read that Boaz's father was named Salmon, but I wonder this morning if you know who Boaz's mother was. If we skip to the New Testament for just a minute, we'll find the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah in Matthew chapter 1 where Matthew lists the unbroken line of descent from Abraham to Jesus through Judah. If you've gotten familiar with the genealogy here in Ruth, then the genealogy in Matthew will seem especially familiar to you. And in that genealogy in Matthew, we find these words in verses 3 to 5. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. 
Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Who was Boaz's mother? Rahab. Rahab, a foreign woman whom God himself rescued from the city of Jericho when the walls fell. The very woman that God himself rescued as part of his all-encompassing eternal plan of redemption. And that reminds me this morning that I can tell you from the depths of my heart, this morning, with all the surety I can muster, that God doesn't miss a thing. All that heartache and tragedy in the lives of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth coalesced into the last word on the story of Ruth. And please, sir, what is that last word? I keep taunting you with that. What is the last word of the story of Ruth? Well, since you asked so nicely... Let me just read it to you. Verse 22 of chapter 4. The last verse of the story of Ruth says, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. So what's the last word in the story of Ruth? David. David is the last word in the story of Ruth, and that simple last word helps us to understand the entire reason for the story of Ruth. It helps us to understand why there was a famine in the land of Israel that that drove a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Mahlon and Kilion, to move to the land of Moab. It explains why Mahlon and Kilion married women from Moab, and then Elimelech, Mahlon, and Kilion died there in Moab. It explains why Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth returned to Israel and arrived in Bethlehem in time for the barley, barley harvest. It explains why Ruth had to work so hard in the fields of a man named Boaz who happened to be her guardian redeemer. It explains why for Boaz it was love at first sight for when he saw Ruth. It explains why Mr. So-and-so, the loser, was so unwilling to redeem Ruth for himself. It explains why Boaz filled his promise, fulfilled his promise not only to redeem Ruth, but to marry her. It explains why their firstborn child was a son whom they named Obed, a name that means strong. All of those things, all of those things are explained by the last word in the story of Ruth, David. None of that was by accident. It was all geared to take us away from Judah, take us from Judah to David in one unbroken line, so that the king's scepter that was figuratively given to Job to, to Jacob, uh, to Judah at Jacob's bedside, would someday be literally given to David. And the scepter would not depart from David's line until Shiloh took it for himself. And let's not forget what Shiloh, that Shiloh means, the one to whom it truly belongs. That last word on the story of Ruth is David, and that means that I have to admit, I have to admit to my shame, that the last word on the story of Ruth was never mine. The last word on the story of Ruth belonged to Shiloh all along. In closing, instead of reading the passage for today, I want to combine something that God said through Jacob with something that God said through Isaiah, and as I read it, I'll ask you to stand in the presence, and you'll understand as you hear the passage. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh 
He to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations will be his. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Come back next week and you'll understand it better. Will you join me in the presence, our Father and our God? Thank you today, Father, for the the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Thank you for Shiloh. Thank you for keeping your promise to become one of us, to be God with us. Thank you that you reached through the lives of Boaz and Ruth so that the day would come when a man named David was born who would be the one to whom promises were made regarding the coming of the Messiah as it became more and more clear down through time. God, thank you for the privilege we've had of of glimpsing that story. It's taken us a long time to get here, but, but thank you for your wonderful faithfulness. Thank you for your intensity, your passion, your zeal for making sure that all of this happened so that we today can praise your name with full understanding of what it cost. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen and amen. We're dismissed.